HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in once again to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here. It's a lovely sunny day in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you've tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and today we are on the line with Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. Nicolette is a beef farmer, an advocate, and author, and today we're going to be talking about her new book, Defending Beef, the Case for Sustainable Meat Production. Nicolette, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, so I... I want to get the controversial stuff out of the way right up top. Um, what is a vegetarian environmental lawyer doing, you know, writing about a beef? <laughs> well, I probably would not have transitioned into the field of raising cattle, um, except for that I got married to Bill Nyman, who's the founder of Nyman Ranch, which is a network of farms and ranch farms and ranches around the country that use traditional uh, animal husbandry practices and basically have their animals on grass, essentially. And I, uh, when I married Bill, I had just uh, left working for Bobby Kennedy Jr. in New York, actually, lived there for five years, and I was uh, the senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance. And during that time, I worked full-time on the issue of livestock pollution, and I had met the, the, the farmers and ranchers of the Nyman Ranch Network and also Bill Nyman, the founder of the company, because we were using, uh, we were visiting their farms and ranches a lot and using them as an example of the right way to do things. So I was already kind of, um, you know, predisposed to having a favorable opinion of Bill when I first met him because I really admired what he was doing um, with, you know, helping all these wonderful farms and ranches around the country uh, get their products to market. So um, I moved out here when we got married. We're in Northern California, north of San Francisco. I moved from Manhattan 
and uh, I still, you know, as a vegetarian and as an environmental lawyer, I still didn't think I would be likely to enter the profession of cattle ranching at that point. But I really um, got super interested in what was happening here, you know, in my midst. And so I was living on the ranch, and even though I was already licensed to practice law in California, and I thought I'd probably begin working as an environmental lawyer here, I actually just started spending more and more time working on the ranch and decided to do that instead. So that's been, you know, that was 11 years ago. So for the last 11 years, I've been directly involved in raising cattle every day. So I think can, uh, folks out there uh, may be wondering, uh, why exactly is it that beef is in need of defending? Um, what, what prompted this kind of um, manifesto in defense of beef? Well, I think it started, you know, in my book, I sort of trace it back to around 1970 when, you know, there was really this birth of the environmental movement. And at the same time, there was an increasing consciousness about the the importance of food production as part of the environment. And, you know, you had books like Diet for a Small Planet that really said, um, that really argued uh, very strongly that there weren't enough resources in the world to raise meat and that we really, if we were going to feed the world, we needed to transition away from meat. And beef, uh, in that book as well as in many subsequent books, was pointed to as kind of the worst offender. And so, you know, that's been several decades now, and it's really become, you know, in, you know, in my view, I've been, I've, I worked for environmental nonprofits for several years, and I've been kind of involved in environmental causes my whole life. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I have heard that idea that beef are, you know, the most problematic from an environmental standpoint, and then on the human health side, you know, that it's the least healthy food you could possibly eat, you know. <laughs> so I really felt it, it, it needs defending. <laughs> well, um, lots, of, lots of great um, kind of content in the book, and I definitely encourage listeners to, to, to buy their own copy. Today, I want to focus on the third chapter, which talks about water. And um, can you give us, you know, you mentioned, obviously, that you were focused on uh, livestock through your work at the Waterkeeper Alliance. Why is the Waterkeeper Alliance an organization that's engaged with livestock producers? What's the link between livestock production and water? Yeah, well, um, the water issue is a very important one, and my my. My expertise in that actually goes back even before I was hired by Waterkeeper Alliance. I was working for National Wildlife Federation as an environmental lawyer, and my work was mostly focused on water protection there as well. When I came to uh, to Waterkeeper, Bobby Kennedy had already been, he was very frustrated by um, what he was seeing around the country, lots and lots of pollution, water pollution especially, that was directly attributable to concentrated livestock and poultry and dairy operations, and he really didn't feel that any of the major environmental groups and certainly no governmental agencies were doing much to address the problem. So he, he really felt this was a major unmet need in the environment environmental world. And um, and the reason, you know, that, and I began visiting, as soon as I started working for him, I began visiting a lot of these facilities and a lot of these communities that have these concentrated animal operations. And um, the reason is essentially you have 
many, many animals, far more. I mean, just to give you an example, let's say a traditional chicken flock in, let's say, 1900 in the United States. Almost every single farm in the United States had chickens in 1900, so they were just dispersed. Burst. In fact, they were really common in urban areas as well. Um, a large percentage of the chickens in the United States in 1900 were in urban areas. But they were kind of everywhere, and they were in very small flocks. So a typical flock might have a dozen or 20 chickens. Now, fast forward that to about the middle of the 20th century when they began to become you know, very concentrated, very large operations. And today, a typical uh, operation for laying hens may have over a million chickens in it, a million hens, and a typical operation for uh, meat chickens might have about 70,000 birds in it. So if you just think about the scale, you know, the, the sort of exponential increase in the number of animals, it immediately raises, you know, the specter of dramatic environmental impacts because you have so much feed that is being transported to those operations, and then so much manure that is coming out the back sides of those. And it's literally impossible to deal in an environmentally sound way with that much waste. Well, so you're essentially creating, I, for me, I feel like the thing that makes it clearest is to think of like the confined animal feeding operation as a, a city with a population of you know 20,000 or 15,000 or 100,000 or, or whatever it may be. Um, especially when you're looking at at beef cattle, you know they're obviously like by, by volume much larger than humans. And if you can think about the structure infrastructure that's set up to deal with our waste, I think it doesn't take too long to get to what what's happening um, with with the waste products for these animals. So, what except for just, I want to interrupt yeah, for just a second. In. There's a really important distinction that I talk about in a lot of detail in my book between the way beef cattle are raised and the way other species are raised. And although dairy cattle are often confined, in fact, the majority of the United States now are in confined um, in confinement buildings, that is not true for beef cattle. There are essentially no beef cattle that are raised in buildings in anywhere in the world. They're really raised outdoors still. So that's a very important distinction, both environmentally and from an animal welfare perspective. So as I argue in the book, even sort of the worst, you know, most offensive giant feedlot in Texas with 100 cattle, 100,000 cattle in it, in my view, is a far less, um, is much less of a concern, especially from an animal welfare perspective, but also from an environmental perspective, because the manure is not liquefied, it is treated as a solid, and it is, there, I explained it in quite a bit of detail in the book, but there are far less uh, risks to the environment from that kind of a setup. So um, I just want to, you know, note that I actually view the, the poultry and the pig and the dairy structure, the way those are raised, as far more environmentally problematic than beef. And that's one of the, the myths I dispel in the book. And it's because you can't raise beef cattle in the same type of confinement arrangement? Or, you know, it, why it could, is that? It could be done, right. um, but it's not economical, so it isn't done. Um, just like goats and sheep are raised outdoors, um, basically those are grazing animals. And, it, you know, it's not, you know, because cattle ranchers are so much nicer people than dairy farmers or something like that. It's really just about the economics. It just makes a great deal more sense to have the animals actually out on grass grazing. All of the mother cows in this country that are raised for beef are on grass. 
all of the bulls, all of the calves. And only when they reach a certain level of maturity do they even go into a feedlot, and some don't ever do that. So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of beef cattle that are on grass. You know, the, the, a large percentage are always on grass, even when they're not raised totally for grass-fed beef. And of those that then do go to a feedlot, they still spend a large portion of their lives on grass. And then again, when they go to a feedlot, they're still outdoors in a relatively, comparatively uncrowded environment when you compare that, again, to chickens, pigs, dairy cows, et cetera. So it's just, you know, it's just, to me, that's a very important distinction. So can you, can you help us paint a picture? So it, like a feedlot, the, the transition from, um, cows be or i'm sorry the calves being like out on grass and then at a certain point they come on to a feedlot and that this and and why is that like what at what point do you go from point a to point b well the typical you know beef that's raised in the united states today and it is again it's important to distinguish what geography you're talking about this is kind of a uniquely american system there are some other parts of the world where feedlots are used but the norm the world over actually is to have the cattle entirely on grass and i you know i kind of talk about that in detail in the book as well but looking just at the united states so if you look at the us at a certain age it's typically around a year there is a portion of um, calves that go into feedlots, but that's uh, only about 25 to 30% of the cattle go into feedlots as calves, which is a practice I strongly, uh, strongly reject and think is not acceptable at all. But more typically, cattle will go into feedlots when they're what they call yearlings, you know, when they're around a year of age. And they're put there basically because when you're trying to get the animal to the sort of the fatter body condition and the you know the bigger weight and and more intramuscular fat um you can do that more easily and faster and and year round if you feed them grain and it's the easiest way to do that in terms of you know just sort of logistically the easiest way to do that is to have the animals confined and to bring the grain to them so you know in my view uh there is nothing inherently wrong with feeding some grain to cattle. Um, our own cattle that we raise are totally grass-fed, but I think there is a time and a place for some grain feeding in certain geographies especially. But the problem is the idea has really been taken to an extreme, you know, in the modern feedlot. You have, you know, huge numbers of animals. You have, um, again, often they're brought in, they're too young, and they're fed a very high energy ration when really they should still be grazing, especially when they're at a younger age. And that can lead to health problems, et cetera. So there are a number of animal husbandry reasons not to do that. And from an environmental standpoint, it's problematic because the crops that are raised to feed to cattle and feedlots are extremely environmentally damaging. Yeah, well, that's where I wanted to kind of go next is, you know, kind of talking about the conversation around um, water. And one, one of the spaces that at Beef, I think, stands out as far as, like, getting a bad rap is, the statistics that are always put out there that, you know, it's such a, that, that beef production requires such a high volume of water that's completely unsustainable. And you hear these kind of uh, crazy facts and figures and you see them repeated in a bunch of places. And I think one of the most interesting, you know, components of your book was where you kind of took us through 
what all is like included or not included in that. And I want to tuck into that, but we have to take just a short station break. So hang tight. Okay. When we get back, we will um, tread into those waters, so to speak. <laughs> listening to It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, we are on the line with Nicolette Han Nyman talking about her new book, Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. So talking about water, um, you know, in, what is it, I'm on page 85 here, um, you state that a, uh, a well-managed, well-managed grazing does not cause water pollution and that the overall effect of grazing cattle as part of a food system is a net positive for water in terms of both Quantity and quality. Yes. Can you can you um, can you give it fill us in on some of the details there? So I think obviously uh, in in the first uh, section of the show, if people are just tuning in, um, you know, you made the distinction between um, the way beef cattle are raised in comparison to dairy animals or the poultry industry or the pork industry. So. Why is it that beef is still kind of like lumped in this negative environmental space? Um, and and is there you know are there I'm assuming that there are people who are like offenders as it as as it relates to kind of water quality, but as like a general assumption or in the in the volume of production that's not an issue or just break it down for us because I'm like a little unclear. Well, okay, there are a couple of major issues. I Actually, in the water chapter, I sort of break it down into quantity and quality concerns. And when you work in, you know, water quality protection, as I did as an environmental lawyer for several years, you were always looking at those two issues kind of distinctly. You know, is something causing pollution or is it wasting the water? So that's the quantity versus quality. So let's look for just a second at the quantity issue, because you mentioned that before the break. 
Um, it gets uh, repeatedly stated, you know, on websites and blogs and stuff all the time that beef is this tremendous outlier when it comes to water consumption. And the reason for that is because you can, in fact, create a, a number uh, that is that seems very large of the pound, amount of water per pound of beef. If you look at a worst-case scenario, you could build, actually, you could probably do that with just about any food. And what... What I cite in, the, I, I go through quite a bit of the research in my book, and I cite what I think is the most credible study that's ever been done on this issue, really trying to quantify a typical pound of beef, how much uh, water is required in the entire phase of production. And that's from University of California at Davis, right. which is an excellent school. And they came up with a figure for a typical pound of beef. That's an incredibly important distinction. Not a worst-case scenario, but a typical pound of beef in the United States today. And they found that the water usage is just a little bit higher than what a pound of rice takes. Now, rice is a fairly water-intensive food as well. So is coffee, chocolate, sugar, avocados, Almonds, walnuts. Like all my <laughs> you know, favorite stuff. There are a lot of water-intensive <laughs> foods. There are many wonderful, delicious water-intensive foods, and I think it's important to be mindful about those issues. But the suggestion that you hear over and over again that beef is some enormous guzzler of water and it's a tremendous outlier—that's just not true. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is in terms of water quality, how how much water pollution does something cause? Beef. Production is incredibly variable depending on how it's done. So just like with almost any other human activity, if it's done well, it'll have a totally different impact than if it's done badly. And there are, you know, lots of people will claim that, you know, it causes beef production causes erosion or causes, you know, water pollution. But in reality, a well-managed grazing operation is probably one of the most protective uh, uses of land, human uses of land, in terms of water, because you will keep a, uh, a very dense vegetative cover, which protects the soil. It keeps it in place, and it also creates uh, a below-ground environment that's like a sponge, and it holds the water. So um, there's been very good research on this around the world showing that the total annual rainfall is much less important in an area than how, you know, the condition of the soil, the health of the soil. And when you have healthy soil, um, you will make, you know, you will keep that water in the environment. And that's actually a lot more important. So, so drought stricken regions and water stressed regions, um, that have well managed grazing will actually be very well served by that. And it's actually more protective of water than most other forms of agriculture and human uses. So that's a really, really important, um, thing for people to understand. What, why is it? Well, I mean, where does the this come from? Like, why is it that that this is that that, that beef has been the target? Do you think? Well, I you know I I kind of trace it, the history of a little bit in in defending beef, but I really think it's just a series of um, you know sort of books and I you know advocacy pieces that have um, sort. I mean, I read the book um, Beyond Beef by Jeremy Rifkin um, that he wrote, I think, about 15 years ago or so. I read it about 10 years ago. And, you know, it basically says that literally every bad thing on the planet is because of cattle. <laughs> you know, his wife is a vegan, and then he became a vegan, I think, at some point. And people love to say that. I mean, it makes a great story. And I think the reason why um, beef has been so, um, you know, kind of this... 
favorite target of a lot of um, sensational journalism is because it was, up until just a couple years ago, it was the most consumed meat in the United States. And it was always considered the most desirable. You know, because beef has always been more expensive than other meats, and it is a luxury meat in some parts of the world where they don't have enough grazing area to raise it. So there's something really appealing about making the case that it's a horrible thing that, you know, is the cause of all evils. <laughs> especially because in the United States, you know, we had the iconic hamburger. I mean, you know, it was it, it's just something very sexy about knocking it off its throne. Yeah, it's in, like, in a weird way, it's like... It- I don't know, like anti-American, but it, it feels very, um, the conversation feels very like bandwagon-y. And I, and I think that's the thing you see in, in media a lot. And it's always something that, it, you know, you have to be careful where you're repeating kind of like facts and figures. And especially when you're looking at agriculture production, there's so many different um, kind of systems at, at play that I think it's it's hard. I, I honestly, it's like hard for consumers. It's hard for people in the media to 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 keep up on all of those you know moving parts. So um, you know it's great that like you're. I, I feel like it's great that you you know you put, you put out this resource for folks. And I want to ask you, you know, when we think about the beef industry, for me, I always think about the relationship between um, dairy animals and meat animals, and and the fact that kind of you know. Biologically, even if you're uh, a dairy breed, if you're a male, like you don't fit into that system. Did you look into at all kind of the overlap of the the, the dairy system and the and the beef system and, and where those two kind of play play nice with each other, or or, or is there like a, a system that like is set up for the male dairy animals that is similarly environmentally beneficial to the beef production systems that you outline? Well, it, it, most people, it's, I've met quite a few vegetarians over the years that did not understand, uh, you know, the real uh, role of eggling hens and dairy cattle in the food system. So it might be important just to make sure that's clear to people that are listening. Um, all dairy cows end up in the beef stream. In fact, up until a few decades ago, about 50% of U.S. beef came from dairy cattle. That number is quite a bit lower today because we actually have far fewer dairy cattle in the country today than we did 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And the reason for that is because of various things that have made the per-animal production much higher. But in any event, there's a big overlap between um, the beef industry and the dairy industry because all dairy cows end up as beef. Now, you mentioned the, the beef uh, calves, or excuse me, the dairy calves, the male calves, um, not only all end up as meat, um, I mean, they all end up as meat, but the ones that are, that are males have no role in a dairy, right? So they either um, become veal, which is the typical approach that's done in Europe, for example, and, but there's not nearly as much veal consumption in the U.S., so there are various different things that are done with male dairy calves, and some are raised to maturity and sold as um, as meat. And I have no objection to that, but unfortunately, um, in fact, I think that's great, um, but unfortunately, in a lot of cases, those dairy calves, those male dairy calves, are directly sent to a feedlot. That is a situation where you have calves um, that are literally never on grass. Those are not beef calves. All beef calves are on grass. But those dairy calves sometimes go directly to a feedlot, which is really unfortunate. So um, anyway, there's a lot of um, there's an, a lot of overlap. 
And, you know, my argument in the book is that really all cattle, both dairy cattle and beef cattle, should be on grass to the greatest extent possible. It's, it creates better, healthier food. It creates better, you know, health for the animals. And it's definitely better from an ecological standpoint. And as a consumer, when I'm, you know, getting a hamburger at kind of the the local pub, I mean, I have no way to tell unless the proprietor lets me know, like, right. whether it's a dairy cow that this uh, hamburger came from or wh- whether it was a beef cattle. And I think, too, that, that is like when you get into kind of other con- concerns around, like, you know, labeling and, and production line and transparency. Um, but but I just I want to, you know, I guess, highlight that that there's like a distinction there. Yeah, and actually, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with beef from dairy cattle, but the problem is that when you use the beef from conventionally raised dairy cows, okay, I'm not talking about the organic dairy cows, that's a whole different set of issues, but when conventional dairy cows, which is the majority of the dairy herd in the United States, um, there's very little restriction on what they can be fed, and there's quite a lot of, you know, things that are added to the feed and so forth that people might not want in their food chain. So... um, that's the that's the trouble, you know. And and in Europe, where you had um, an, an enormous number of mad cow disease cases, you had there's almost none of it in the United States. You know, the total total number of dairy or ca- cattle in the United States have been had had mad cow disease is something like five or seven, I think. So it's tiny. But in Europe, they had a huge problem with it, and it was mostly from dairy cattle because those are the ones that are fed a lot of feeds. They're not grazing nearly as much, and mad cow disease is, is transmitted entirely through the feed. So, there, you know, there's there's a just a question of sort of, you know, the purity of the food that's being created, and if you, you know, if you want to eat beef that I think you can be really confident um, doesn't have objectionable additives <laughs> in the food stream, I think the best thing is to get totally grass-based beef, whether it's from dairy cows that spent their whole life on grass, which there are some, not a lot, um, or beef cattle that spent their entire life on grass. That way you can kind of avoid all of the concerns about feed additives and hormones and other things because people that are raising their cattle entirely on grass don't use those things. Don't use those things anyway. Well, obviously we're bringing up here more questions than we're, <laughs> I, anyway, for me, bringing up more questions than maybe we're, we're answering um, and making a case, I, th- I guess, for the purchasing of your book. But we are just about out of time. I wanted to touch on just like one more um, area that I thought was interesting. Um, we're talking again about water usage. Um, and, and one of the other areas you go into is the link between kind of uh, water and energy use as it relates to both crop production and fertilizer production. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just um, outline briefly kind of when we're talking about kind of the inputs for beef, like w- how we think about crop production and, and fertilizer. Like I think that's the thing that doesn't pop immediately to mind that, oh, like these are the other areas I need to be thinking about when I'm thinking about my beef. Why is it that you chose to highlight these? 
Well, actually, I think it's true for all food production. I mean, there are two two aspects that are incredibly important that you just mentioned. One is sort of the environmental impact of plowing land. You know, all crop production is environmentally very problematic. I have a quote from Wes Jackson in the book where he says the single greatest damage that humans have done to the globe is by plowing it, you know. And um, he's, he's a great agricultural thinker for those of your um, listeners who don't know who he is, but he's He's the founder of the Land Institute in Kansas. And, you know, plowing is just problematic. So when you, whenever you have to raise crops to feed the animals or even just raise crops for direct human consumption, you have to worry about these issues of erosion and soil contamination and soil loss. When you're growing those crops, it's also very typical in the United States. You know, the vast majority of crops are raised using a lot of agricultural chemicals. So there's also the concern of, you know, chemical contamination and the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is mostly due to crop production in the upper Midwest because of these issues, because of the chemicals and because of the erosion that it causes. So to me, this is all part of the the necessity of the grass-based agricultural system that I think we need to move toward. And the reason why cattle are so important is because you can raise food, you can raise grazing animals on a grassland that you don't have to plow, you don't have to put any agricultural chemicals on it, you don't have to irrigate it, and you can essentially keep it in its natural state, and the animals do the harvesting themselves. That's actually the environmentally optimal place for food production. And so if we're doing well-raised cattle, um, I think they actually are among the most ecologically way, you know, possible ways to raise food. Nicolette, thank you so much. Um, it was really a pleasure to, to chat with you, and I'm excited to make my way through the rest of the book. appreciate it. Thank you, Erin. It's been a real pleasure. For folks out there who want to learn more, definitely check out um, Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, uh, available wherever fine books are sold. Um, definitely way more in there than we were able to touch on today. Um, also, lots of, I feel like, empowering information for those kind of round-the-dinner-table conversations with uh, your non-meat-eating um, friends and your environmental friends and um just a great uh, kind of toolkit for unpacking a lot of what's happening in agriculture today. So definitely check that out. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. Uh, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. Definitely uh, subscribe if you like it. That's a big help to uh, hosts like myself. Uh, leave a review if you have comments or questions or feedback. And I hope that you also check us out by visiting the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you like what we do, we are a member-supported organization, so click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>